This is a story about Don Bowles, who was a reporter for the Arizona Republic. He worked there from the late 60s into the mid-70s. If you saw him around the newsroom, he was recognizable for his black-rimmed eyeglasses and his military buzz cut and his pipe. But if the name Don Bowles rings a bell with you, it's likely because of one thing, the way he died. Bowles was killed in June 1976, outside a hotel in Midtown Phoenix. He was supposed to meet a source for a lunchtime interview, but the man canceled on him. Bowles got into his car to leave, started it up, backed out, and that's when the bomb that was affixed to the underside of his car detonated. Don Bowles is a 47-year-old investigative reporter for the Arizona Republic. Today, as he attempted to start his car, a bomb went off. His doctor said he had never seen a more heroic fight for life. But after 11 days of hospitalization, during which both legs and an arm had to be amputated, Don Bowles died. The murder of Don Bowles shocked what was then a much smaller, sleepy city. It made you feel vulnerable, and you realize that it, uh, this isn't just a little place of uh, cactus and, and uh, margaritas, and all of a sudden it was uh, a dark and dangerous place. And the realization of that was really shattered a lot of naivete, I believe. And I don't know that we've been the same since then. It also shocked the country. He was a reporter killed for doing his job. It was, and still is, a rare incident in the United States, a country where freedom of the press is a defining principle. The governor of Arizona ordered the flags at the state capitol flown at half-staff in honor of a man much respected in this state. The Arizona Republic, where he worked, ran front-page stories about his death. There was a sense of urgency, of wanting to find out how this could happen to a newspaper reporter. There was a spirit at St. Joseph Hospital and Don Bowles is, is our guy at that place. And uh, I'll always remember how, how they handled everything. That's Bill Shover. He was an executive at the Republic at the time. He stayed with Bowles at the hospital for 11 days after the bombing, right up until his death. And I couldn't believe it, that, that here was this mangled body and that was one of the saddest things I ever did in my life, by staying there for 11 days and watching the man die. Bowles' life would come to be defined by his death. But there's more to the story of Don Bowles than his murder. We found a story that we think adds to the man's legacy. We found it by looking through file cabinets that contained some of Bowles' files and notes. Those cabinets also held cassette tapes that Bowles made while reporting. And because someone, for some reason, saved those cassette tapes, it means that Don Bowles himself will help tell this story. My name is Richard Rellis. I'm a reporter for the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com, and this is Rediscovering Don Bowles, a murder journalist. The story we found in Bowles' notes and cassette tapes takes place in 1970, six years before the bombing. It's a story that upended Bowles' life. It changed him professionally. It changed him personally. Although, by the time of his death, not many people remembered that it happened. But Bowles did. 
there are clues that this story was still on his mind at the moment a bomb went off under his feet. In late 2018, a set of file cabinets was brought into the Arizona Republic newsroom. They had been stored in a warehouse, and just like you might clear out a storage room, the newspaper decided to sift through that warehouse and decide what to keep. But what was inside those cabinets was a mystery. They were locked shut, and no one knew where the keys were. We hired a locksmith who cracked them open. We removed the iron bar that kept the drawers closed, and we looked inside. Might as well start at the front. It quickly became clear. These were files related to Don Bowles. The day of the bombing, the Republic executive, Bill Shover, whom you've heard from before, went to Bowles' desk at the state capitol press room and boxed up everything he could find. For years, those files were kept under lock and key. Only certain people had access to the files. Some reporters have picked through them over the years, looking to follow up on what Bowles was working on or looking for clues as to who wanted him dead. In late 2018, my editor assigned me to look through those decades-old files to see what was in there. Yeah, if it's his notes, then there could be something. If it's notes from the people who did the reporting after him. It was a lot of material. I wasn't sure where to begin. Then, I found the stash of cassette tapes. Uh, cassette tapes. Cassette tapes in a brown folder. The Republic that Bulls worked at in the 60s and 70s was strictly a print newspaper. The same held for me through much of my career in newspapers. There was no website when I started working for this company in 1994. Now, we've learned to tell stories in different ways. Maybe there was a story in those tapes, one that had never been told in this way before. Let me describe these tapes. They were in bad shape. Some were held together by scotch tape. There was writing on some of them, but it was hard to read. All of them looked weathered. I wondered how the actual tapes themselves would hold up. I put a cassette in the deck at my house. I pushed play. I hoped for the best. I heard hissing, then buzzing, then a conversation. I've never met the guy in my life, and I've never seen him around with Tony or River Downs and Miles or anywhere. It sounded like a phone call, but I didn't know who was talking, when they were talking, or what they were talking about. There was mention of a Sam Steiger. I knew Steiger was a former congressman from Prescott, a city north of Phoenix. But there were names I didn't recognize, like Stark and Rieger, and something about a $20,000 payoff. J. Robert Stark. After a few minutes, that conversation ended, and another one started. It was another phone call, but this one started with a different voice, and he introduced himself. Bob, Don Bowles here. It was Don Bowles. <laughs> what, what did they say? This was his voice. Yeah. Okay, real good. I just want to find out uh, what the status is on the commission. Don Bowles' picture hangs in our newsroom. I see it every day I'm in there. But I never thought about what he sounded like. This was him. This was his voice. He was talking to someone named Bob about something to do with the racing commission. Out, uh, where you stand uh, on this uh, uh, 
racing commission thing as to it was all hard to make out though Bowles' voice was pretty clear uh, what happened the other this is all between us but the man he was talking to sounded distant and that distant voice competed with an electronic hum and that came from the primitive way the conversation was recorded back then to record a call a reporter would stick a suction cup to the phone's receiver and there was a cord coming out of it that would send the signal into a tape recorder. But depending on how close the reporter was to the phone and probably a host of other factors, the tape would pick up a buzz or a hum. It took some time to decipher the tapes, to figure out what was being said, by whom, and when. And when I put it together, I realized that this was a Don Bull story that I never knew about. It's a story of corruption and power and the lengths people will go to to hang on to their empire. Even in a small city, like Phoenix was in the 1970s. Phoenix turned 100 in 1970. From a dusty desert farm town grew a metropolis of nearly a million people. By the end of the 70s, another half million people called it home, making it the fastest growing in America. And yet, at the beginning of the decade, even the big cities didn't feel so big. This is from an Arizona PBS series called Arizona Memories. My sisters lived in Phoenix. I lived to them way out in Tempe. There were some sheep ranchers out there, and there were times that traffic would be stopped while the people herding the sheep would just take their time, and the sheep aren't that fast. Millions of people live in Phoenix now. It's the fifth largest city in America, and that's not even counting the suburbs. But in 1970, the population of Phoenix was in the hundreds of thousands. Much of the city's life took place in central Phoenix. There were the government and court buildings downtown, and a line of high-rises on either side of Central Avenue as it headed north. Scattered in between these buildings were a series of bars frequented by the power players, lawmakers, lobbies, lawyers, judges, cops, and journalists. This was the Phoenix that Don Bowles inhabited. So who was Don Bowles? Bowles was born in Wisconsin. His grandfather was a congressman from Wausau, a small town three hours north of Milwaukee. His father was a bureau chief in Wisconsin for the Associated Press. Bowles was proud to be from Wisconsin. Listen to his reaction when the city of Milwaukee came up in a conversation he had in December of 1970. Born 1937. Yeah, where? Um, Milwaukee. Ah, my, my stomping ground and birthplace. Did you? Well, I'll be darned. I came from, from Madison, Wisconsin. Didn't know that. You did? Yeah. And my yeah. granddad was... Uh, uh, editor of the Janesville Gazette, which is right oh, down boy. the line. And he was also a representative uh, in Congress uh, from that district. In well, I'll be. 38 to 41 when he died. Uh, my, my dad was the Associated Press Chief of Bureau in Milwaukee in uh, 1928 to about 33, I think, and then he moved into New York. Oh. But we got a lot of ties back then. Oh, yeah. As Bulls just told you, he moved to the East Coast when his father became an AP man in New Jersey. He'd moved back to Wisconsin for college. Oh, you went to Co? I went to Beloit. <laughs> he graduated from Beloit College in 1950. He served in the Korean War. Then Bulls got a job with the Associated Press. 
He worked in bureaus in New York, Newark, and Kentucky. In 1962, Bulls moved to Phoenix. How long have you been out here? Oh, about eight and a half years. How do you like it? Oh, I love it. What part of town you live in? Oh, sunny slope. It's uh, real nice and cool up there in the summertime. Bulls got hired by the Republic and took to the city. He bought a house in the Sunny Slope area of Phoenix. By 1970, he was married to a woman named Rosalie. Their household was busy, lots of kids. He had four children from his first marriage. His wife, Rosalie, had two from her previous marriage, and they had one child together. We, um, we just fell in love with each other and started seeing each other and eventually ended up getting married. And then we had this wonderful little girl. That's Rosalie. We traveled to South Carolina to interview her. Hello. She lives in a rural town about an hour south of Charlotte. Don and Rosalie met at a party. The attraction was instant. I saw Don and everything just <laughs> went by the wayside after that. <laughs> and even though Bowles was well known in some circles, his name or job title did not impress Rosalie. And the funny thing is, I didn't even take the paper. While visiting her, we played her some of the audio we found from her late husband. Says, I have been following with interest the problems you have been having with Greyhound Racing. I am really not sure what we can do from this end. Hearing his voice brought up a lot of memories for her. There's a Kleenex to your face. Uh, yes, I... Well, hearing his voice. <laughs> One of the tapes included a conversation that, for some reason... Bowles recorded of himself and his wife. Real good. I'll see you. I'm, I'm going to be early tonight, I think. Huh. Well, I mean, earlier. I'm, I'm not going to be late, I'm pretty sure. Even after all these years, it just... Um, I think my child said it. At first he was there, and then he wasn't there. And, and, then, and that's what's so hard, because... was just snatched right away from our lives. It was clear in talking to Rosalie that, for her, she knew Don as Don the husband, the family man. She reflected on family camping trips they took together, and when Don taught their daughter Diane how to swim. But at work, it was Don the reporter, the tenacious reporter, who wasn't afraid to dig into the details. Well, Bowles was, he really was, an old-fashioned, passionate, investigative reporter who really, when you look at a film noir and you look at the mob and the businessmen who are corrupt and the legislators who are involved, that's the kind of thing he was digging into as late as the 70s. That's Charles Kelly, a reporter who worked with Don Bowles back in the day. He, he had great sources, not only in Phoenix and Arizona, but across the country. He had, he had great files on mobsters. Uh, so he not only was passionate, but he was very organized, and so he had a lot of impact for that reason. Bulls reported on the legislature, but he was given room and space to report on other things that came his way, too, like the mafia. People knew who Bulls was and some people feared their names being in his stories, as this attorney told Bowles in a phone call. But I read your articles in the paper, and I know, you know, uh, and I don't particularly want to be a part of it. 
serious. I don't need my name in that those articles, and I don't well, think it should be there. But I don't need it there. Back then, it seemed like everyone read the newspaper from cover to cover. Journalism was really seen as something that would improve the world, and we still hope that that happens today. But uh, to a degree, it was much more dramatic and uh, close to people in the street uh, than. And, and Bowles was a reporter, reporter who really exemplified that. The Republic still has the largest reach of any entity in the state of Arizona, but the Republic of the 1970s, in an era before the internet, before social media, had an even more intense influence. It was a powerful entity. People living in Phoenix at that time described the newspaper as seemingly being able to dictate public policy and decide who was in office. That's how Napoleon wielded the paper's influence. He learned pretty early what it took to make a real weapon out of the newspapers, which basically meant putting it on front page, on page one. That's former Republic reporter Bill Meek, who worked alongside Bowles in the late 60s and early 70s. And it wasn't only reporters who felt that way. Here's an attorney, Patrick McGroder, who lived in Phoenix at the time. The Arizona Republic was a tremendously powerful force in those days, not that it isn't today. The editorial page, the publisher, uh, the manager were very, very powerful folks. Uh, the Phoenix 40 was emerging in those days, so there was kind of a hierarchy of power structure here in Phoenix. Patrick McGroder mentioned a group called the Phoenix 40 that started in 1975. It was a group of businessmen organized by the publisher of the Republic, Eugene Pulliam. And the fact Pulliam would start such a group showed his mindset as a publisher. Former Republic reporter Bill Meek said that the publisher wasn't a daily presence in the newsroom, but he could make his feelings felt when he wanted to. He only got involved in, in stories that he cared about, which typically meant, meant political stories, but not always. He was also concerned about issues that really affected the long-term outlook of the state. Pulliam wanted Phoenix to be squeaky clean. He wanted it to be a place where people and businesses would want to move. He didn't want to see it taken over by scandal and corruption. In that way, Don Bowles became a favorite of Pulliam. Bowles also wanted to stamp out any corruption he came across. He had heard tales and read books about what dirty public officials and organized crime could do to a city, and he didn't want it to happen in Phoenix. About is, is organized criminals, organized syndicates uh, coming into Arizona and trying to walk away with the place, and that's what they're doing. In 1969, Bull started looking at possible corruption in the dog racing industry. It wouldn't be long before he suspected mafia ties. Well, I thought things were mighty peculiar one time when I went down to the track and they gave me the big royal treatment, and uh, this was early in the game. And, uh, you know, I was just fiddling around, throwing two dollars down on a dog just to see what happened, you know. Yeah. And uh, got near the end, and I was about twenty dollars down or something, and I didn't care, you know. Yeah. Uh, and uh, the public relations guy said, uh, "Hey, uh, he says I think I know who's going to win. Uh, got a good shot at who's going to win the next race. Uh, Want to go in on a Quinella with me? Yeah. Or a Perfecta or something? I can't remember." Probably. Yeah, and I said, okay. And this, this dog came out of nowhere to win that race. <laughs> At the time, there was only one family that owned the tracks. 
the Funk family. James Trow was the business manager for the Funks at the time they owned Greyhound Park. The key members of the Funk family have all since passed away, so Trow was our best bet at getting their insight. I talked to him over the phone. He remembered the night Bulls visited the track. As I said, I, I was there the night that he was given the tour, and I, I wasn't introduced to him. I didn't particularly want to be, but um, he, was, he was never fair with him at all. Made himself out to be the big friend of the tracks that night. Anyway, I, it, was, it was kind of a, kind of a strange situation. I thought at the time for a guy to come in and pretend like you know, he was a great friend of the of the uh, tracks, and then two days later, <laughs> I think it was a Sunday paper, and it was like headlines. I thought, wow. Hmm. Over the next year, Bowles wrote a series of stories that questioned whether it was in the state's best interest to have one family monopolize the track's ownership, and whether the Funk family was too cozy with a larger company called Emprise that had ties to organized crime. Given the gravity of the Republic, those stories had impact. Here's attorney Patrick McGroder again. If the Republic branded Emprise or some other business or institution as vile, uh, or running some type of scam, or some type of illegality, boy, uh, people ran scared. Yeah, you, di you, you didn't want your name and the front page above the fold in those days. The stories didn't please the Funk family or Emprise, and Bulls knew it. But he didn't know how far the Funks and Emprise would go to stop him. In August of 1970, Bulls got a call from Congressman Sam Steiger. Steiger asked to meet him in the parking lot of a motel in Globe, a little town in eastern Arizona. Bulls drove up there with an aide from Steiger's office. In the parking lot, Bulls went into a camper-like vehicle that Steiger used on the campaign trail. Inside, Steiger introduced him to a man named George Johnson. Johnson had a confession to make. Johnson said he was hired by the Funk family to dig up dirt on Bulls that they were doing this because they thought there was some conspiracy against them, that maybe Bowles was being paid to write those stories that made the Funks look bad. And, Johnson said, as part of his plan to prove the conspiracy, he had gained access to Bowles's bank records. He had obtained a list of phone calls made from Bowles' home phone. He had also hired someone to tap into Bowles's home phone line and that Johnson had listened to some of the calls. The idea that his home telephone would have been wiretapped initially angered Bowles. It would come to consume him through the end of his life. We don't have a tape of that initial meeting in Globe, but Bowles would later reveal his frustrations in conversations with the FBI and other law enforcement officials. You can imagine my, uh, how I feel about it. Yeah, well, I feel the same way. <laughs> Because <laughs> uh, I'm sure you know I'm in the same boat. No, I did not know. It. Oh, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And a lot of other people. If they put a tamp on you? Yep. These guys are, well, you know, yeah. I mean, they're, they're doing something else. And here's Bull speaking with someone from the FBI. As I told you, the thing that we're most interested in is finding out where the hell the physical evidence of those wiretaps is. We just uh, really, you know, I'm just afraid that the word's going to get out and those damn things are going to disappear yeah. and it's going to be awful tough to make a case yeah. just on his word. 
Bowles wanted those tapes because those tapes would solve the mystery he had on his hands. He had to figure out if George Johnson was telling the truth. Were people so desperate to smear him that they would take the radical step of tapping his phone and pawing through his bank account? And if so, who was responsible? How could he set this right? How could he make them pay? Next time on Rediscovering Don Bowles, a murder journalist. Don Bowles had a story to report out, one that had him at the center. Bowles had to figure out whether what George Johnson told him was true, that the subjects of his stories were investigating him. Don, you're getting into an area there that, you know, that you, I mean, we've been through this one before. There's no point kidding each other. Well, I'm, uh, I'm asking you if, if well, you recall those conversations. I can't. I'm not, I'm not going to sit here and then, knowing full well the way you might write something up and then and say anything. According to Johnson, he paid that stranger to put taps on the phones of several people. The head of the Racing Commission, a county supervisor, a member of Representative Steiger's staff, Steiger himself, and the home of Don Bowles. And uh, my big fight with them was that I wanted assurances, and at that point I wanted this writing. That, uh, you know, we were looking at the people's lives. Yeah. And by that time, I realized that... Uh, Rediscovering Don Bowles, a murder journalist, was reported and voiced by me, Richard Rellis. Taylor Seeley is the lead producer. Katie O'Connell is the executive producer. Script supervision came from news editor Sean McKinnon and news director Josh Susong. Web design for this project came from John Paul McDonald. Social media was led by Danielle Woodward with help from Grace Palmieri. Special thanks to Kayla White, Maritza Dominguez, and Will Flanagan for their support. Kim Bowie provided research assistance. John Adams is our Senior Director for Storytelling and Innovation. Greg Burton is our Executive Editor. This episode included audio segments from the Arizona Memories of the 70s DVD by Arizona PBS, it also included archival audio from CBS News and KTVKTV Channel 3.